word. We're going to begin reading in verse number 32. Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 32. Bible says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise, or in the exact same way, when you shall see all these things, know you that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, I want to translate that in the original language. As the days of Noah were, in the exact same way shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That's how it's translated. For as in the days of Noah, they were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day of Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, and the other left. Let's pray. Father, I just pray you'd speak to our hearts uh, this morning. Uh, I pray that you would just take this passage, use it in our lives. Father, I pray as I've prayed continuously, you would create a sense of urgency as we study this passage together. And Father, you would awaken hearts as we study this passage together. And Father, I'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Now, Matthew chapter 24 the first 31 verses, verses 1 through verse 31, are verses that deal with prophecies that are going to be fulfilled fully in the tribulation period. In other words, you see verses in verse, the first 31 verses, like, for instance, war and rumor of wars. You see those that say that they are Christ, uh, those that come and say that, i.e. the Antichrist. You, you see verses about pestilence. You see verses uh, about all these different things that are going to take place in the tribulation period. Now, with that being said, I want you to understand they correspond exactly with the seven seals in the book of Revelation. And so that's the first 31 verses. Now, but I want you to understand also that even though those first 31 verses are dealing with those things that are going to be fully fulfilled in the tribulation, you and I must understand that God is paving the way for the tribulation. Therefore, what are we seeing today? Well, we're seeing some of these things begin to increase. I mean, we're seeing more earthquakes than we've ever seen before in our history of our world. Well, I mean, we're seeing pestilence like you've never seen before. You're seeing many, many things that are beginning to take place. Now, remember, I'm going to say it again. There are two events when it comes to the coming of the Lord. There's the first event that what we call the coming in the clouds or what we call the coming in rapture. Now, let me tell you the difference between the two events. When it says coming in the clouds, here's what it means. The Lord Jesus will come to the clouds, and he will take his children up 
to meet him in the air. But the second coming of the Lord Jesus, which is what these first 31 verses are dealing with, have to do with the Lord's coming to set up his millennial reign. And listen, he's not going to stop in the clouds. The Bible says he's going to come, plate his feet up on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives are going to split underneath him, and he's coming to this earth to rule and to reign. That's the second coming. The two great events, the coming in the clouds and the coming to this earth of the Lord Jesus. Now, these first 31 verses are dealing with those things that will be fully fulfilled before the second coming, the coming to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. But when we get to verse 32, here's what happens. By the providence of the Holy Spirit, the writer here begins to step back. And as he steps back, he says, Now, let me help you to understand the season which all these things will begin and be fulfilling unfolding before your eyes. And so what he does is he steps back, gives us two illustrations to help us understand the season in which all these things are going to take place. The first illustration is the illustration of the fig tree. And that represents Israel and all their unbelief. And I'll explain that in a minute. The second illustration is the illustration of the flood or the days of Noah. And that illustrates the Gentiles in their unbelief. Now, you say, why would God use two illustrations, one representing Israel and one representing the Gentile? Because you and I need to understand that from both accounts, both accounts here, Jew and Gentile, that the season of the Lord's coming, listen to what I'm about to say, is not coming one day. You and I are in the season of his coming. And so you and I need to understand. And what God wants us to do is be able to discern the season in which we live. Listen, I'm not waiting for the season of his return. I'm waiting for the day and hour of his return. And that's what you and I are anticipating and expecting uh, from this text. This is what I've prayed for these services this morning. I prayed God to turn this church upside down. And literally, I meant that. Because you say, why? Because listen, we live in a day that's unlike any day we've ever lived in in this world. And folks, if we don't get a sense of urgency in this day, I'm telling you, I don't know if we'll ever get it. And so this, I believe, is a very, very important text for us to study. All right, now, so let's take, a, let's take these texts apart. I want to begin in verse 32 looking at the season of the fig. The season of the fig. Notice what he begins. He said, now learn a parable of the fig tree. Now, this word learn means to receive unto yourself by correct teaching. In other words, what he's saying is understand, discern this parable of the fig tree that you can receive it, and as receiving it, you can walk in the reality of it. Now, what is he talking about? Walking in the reality of the season in which he's going to unveil before us here. And so what we're going to look at is a few things. First thing is a discernible season. God makes it clear that you can discern the season of his coming. Now you say, why is that? Well, he says, when this fig tree, when its branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, notice what it says, you know, you don't guess, you don't think, you know that summer is nigh. Now you say, why is the Lord coming back in the summer? Well, because summer represents what? The longest days of the sun, the highest of the sun, the hottest of the sun. And the picture here is Jesus Christ, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness in Malachi, is the one that's going to come back for his children. And when he comes back, listen, the sun 
S-O-N is going to shine upon this earth. And you and I need to understand that Jesus, all this relevates to him. It's all about him. And so what we see here is this discernible season. So what is this discernible season? Well, he deals with this idea of this fig tree. Now, to understand it, you have to understand what is the fig tree representing. Well, it's representing the nation of Israel. Now, you say, how do you know that? Well, there's many, many verses I could take you to. There's two trees in the Bible that represent Israel. The one is the olive tree. The other is the fig tree. Now, there's also the vine, but the vine is not a tree. So there's two trees that represent Israel, the fig tree and the olive tree. Let me show you just a few verses for time's sake to help you understand why this is referring to Israel. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 is a reference here to Israel and the fig tree. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as first stripe in the fig tree at our first time. But they went to Belyar and separated themselves unto the shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. And so there's a reference to Israel in their unbelief as pictured as a fig tree. Now, one of the greatest Old Testament passages of a fig tree is found in Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1 through 9. I'm not going to read that for time's sake, but I'm going to challenge you to read it when you get home. But there's a New Testament picture of the fig tree representing Israel. And you say, where's that? Matthew chapter 21. Now in Matthew 21, Jesus is walking with his disciples. And as he's walking with his disciples, he sees a fig tree on the side of the road. The fig tree has leaves, but it has not produced any fruit. And so what does the Lord Jesus do? Well, the Lord Jesus curses the fig tree. And immediately the leaves of the fig tree wither up. And even the disciples were astounded. And they said unto themselves, How did this fig tree wither up so quickly? Now the picture here of what the Lord was painting was this, that Israel is the fig tree. In other words, they are produced leaves, they're existing, they're flourishing in that realm, but yet at the same time, they never produce fruit. And therefore, what is God going to do? God says, through the cursing of the fig tree, I'm going to remove from Israel the ability to be the promulgators of the gospel, and I'm going to give it to the Gentile. And that's the picture of what he was doing in Matthew chapter 21. But at the same day, how many agree that God will always keep his word? And God promised in the Old Testament that he would fulfill his covenant with Israel. So what he's saying is, I have cursed Israel in that I have now removed her ability to even exist within our land. And they were scattered out all across the world. But God knew and God said all the way back in the Old Testament. You find it in Ezekiel. You find it in Zechariah. You find it in several passages where God promised there would be a day he would bring Israel back to the land. And when he brought Israel back to the land, can I tell you what happened? The fig tree began to put tender leaves upon themselves. So what is it referencing? The occupation of the land of Israel by the people of Israel. You say, when did that happen? 1948, 1948, and the fig tree began to blossom. The fig tree began to put on her tender leaves. Now notice, 
He says here, when the fig tree puts on her leaves, not fruit. Let me ask you a question. Has Israel given themselves to the Messiah yet? No. Are they producing fruit? No. But are they a people now with their own, in their own land that God gave them? Yes. They have leaves, but no fruit. And he says, when you see that, when you discern that has happened, he said, then summer is nigh. Now, watch secondly, a definite statement. He makes a definite statement in reference to this. Verse 34, verily I say unto you, this generation, what generation? The one that sees the fig tree bring forth leaves. This generation may not, possibly won't. Is that what it says? Shall not. Here's the way it reads in the Greek. It's an absolute negative. Shall in no way, shape, or form pass away till all these things be fulfilled. What are all these things? Verses 1 through 31 that are tribulation prophecies fulfilled. So here's what he's saying. This generation that sees this happen will not in any way, shape, or form pass away completely until all of these things be fulfilled. So let me ask you a question. What generation is going to have the tribulation unveiled? Those that saw the 1948 when Israel became a nation again. Now, y'all understand what that means? That means that you and I, if God tarries and we don't breathe our last breath through death, we are going to be the people. And no, listen, whoever was born in 1948, Generation has to do with this meaning, that that generation, there'll be some folks still alive from that generation before all these things are fulfilled. Now, you do the math. If it happened in 1948, that's when Israel came back to the land. That's what Ezekiel said. That's what Old Testament prophecy said. And here's what he makes a definite statement. This will happen. You say, well, preacher, I don't believe that. Well, you better read the next verse. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. In other words, if you think I'm just saying this to say it, he said, hang on. Heaven and earth can pass away. It can be demolished. It can be destroyed. Hey, we live in a day where that could happen real soon. But listen, he said, here's the one thing you can bank on. My word will never, ever pass away. So you're saying, well, preacher, how serious is this? I'm telling you how serious it is. That you and I are the only generation, the only generation in the history of our world that can say what verse 32 says. That we saw it. We're the only generation. And this generation will not pass away. Before the coming of the Son of Man. Look thirdly at a design secret. Look at verse 36. But, even though you can know the season, the season when the fig tree puts on release, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In other words, this is a designed secret. In other words, the Father is the only one that knows the day and hour. Now remember, he's wanting us to discern the season. But he says, only my Father knows the day and hour. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. Why don't he just tell us when he's coming? Well, I want to tell you why he don't tell us. All right? Number one, for lost people, here's what would happen. 
The humanity of a lost person, the flesh of a lost person, here's what they would say. Number one, most of them wouldn't believe him if, he told, if they told him. But number two, even those that even had an inkling that it was true, here's what they would do. They would say, well, I know a date when he's coming, so therefore I'll wait till the day before that date, and then I'll try to get right with God. I got news for you. In deception, even if that was true, they couldn't have got right with God unless God drew them. But number two, what about saved folk? Well, same thing. Saved folk, what would happen? If I know a date that the Lord's coming, and, and so I know that definitive date when the Lord's coming, what's going to happen? Well, your flesh and my flesh would say, well, listen, I can leave a little carelessly now because it's still five years away, and I can leave a little carelessly now. I can live it up a little bit now, but then I'll get right before the Lord comes. I got news for you. If you don't know the day and hour, but you know the season, and you know you're living in the season, and you know that any day, any hour, the Lord Jesus Jesus can come. I want to make this statement. The way I can study the Bible, the best I know how to study it, I don't find one pre-rapture prophecy that's not been fulfilled other than the trumpet blast. So what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying not only are we in the season, we're in the end of the season, and not only that, but in any day and any hour, nothing, according to the Bible, can keep the Lord coming back for his bride. And so if I don't know the day and hour, how's it going to affect me how I live? I'm going to live every moment of every day, expecting at any moment of any day, I'm going to stand face to face with him. See, here's, here's my burden. God so burdened me with this passage. And I want to tell you why. Because we live in a day today where nobody is expecting the Lord to come. And I want to take it a step further. I don't see it in the church in America either. There's no sense of urgency. There, there's no passionate brokenness of knowing. If you knew for a fact that one hour from now, you would stand before the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What would happen during the invitation today? I wouldn't be able to get everybody up here. Social distancing would go out the window. But what I'm trying to tell you is based upon the season in which God's trying to help us discern. It could happen any day. Now you say, why ain't the church burdened about this? Why ain't they urgent in this? Because here's why. They've heard it all their life. They've heard it all their life. They've heard it time and time again. Jesus could come anytime. Jesus could come anytime. Jesus could come anytime. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years went by. Jesus hadn't come. Jesus could come anytime. Yeah, I've heard that over and over again. Well, I want to tell you something, folks. You're going to find out in just a minute. That's exactly what happened in the days of Noah. I'm telling you. Know the times. Learn the parable of the fig tree. I want you to see, secondly, not only the season of the fig, but the season of the flood. Look at verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So now we've seen the, the picture of Israel that helps us discern the season. Now we're going to see the picture of the Gentiles in their unbelief that helps us discern the season. And here's what he says. As it was in the days of Noah, in the exact same way it will be when the coming of the Son of Man. So how many of you agree if it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah before the Son of Man comes, 
I need to understand what it was like in the days of Noah. Would you agree with that? If I'm going to discern the times, I need to know what it was like in the days of Noah. So I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Look with me, if you will, first at the description of the days of Noah. So what were these days of Noah like? Well, I want to look at several things. Number one, the attitude of man. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Here's what it says. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil can what? Continually. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. The word imagination means the scheming or the scheming of their hearts or the, the wisdom of their hearts. Here's what it's saying. That every imagination, every scheme, every idea, every thought was evil continually. What does it have to do with? Here's what it has to do with. This word evil continually has to do with that they lived, they thought, they schemed, they came up with plans, and they left God out of the equation of all of it. In other words, they lived their life as if there was no God. And this is what it's talking about. It says in the next verse, watch. For in the days of Noah before the flood, there was eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark. So you say, what do you mean? They were living it up. They were living it up. They were living as if there was no God. God's not going to intervene. I can live my life how I want to live it, and nothing's going to stop it. Hey, I don't care. Listen, nothing's going to interfere with the way I'm living my life. I'm enjoying myself, and I can live how I want to live. Now you tell me, is that not the day we live in? All this that we're seeing in our country, all this we're seeing in our world, you tell me, have they not left God out of the equation? And this is the way it was in the days of Noah. Luke chapter 17, verse 26 and 28. As it was in the days of Noah, shall so it be in the days of the Son of Man. Same wording. They did eat, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, in the exact same way also, as it was in the day of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. Now, what is he talking about? Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, listen, it was just like Sodom and Gomorrah in the days. And you and I need to understand, the days of Noah were like the days of Lot. And in the days of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, promiscuous, giving themselves to sensual things, abasing themselves one with another. Do you ever thought you'd see a day when a woman with a woman or a man with a man would take precedence over a man with a woman? in marriage you say that's not the day we live in did you hear what the supreme court ruled last week you and i live in a day unlike any other day in our history and it mirrors by the attitude of the mind it mirrors the days of noah let me show you a second component Not only the attitude of man, but the anarchy of man. Listen to Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Does that sound familiar? In the day we live in? Anarchy. Anarchy. Filled with violence. Folks, listen. 
When you take God out of the equation, the only thing left for man is anarchy. You know why? Because man wants their rights. Man wants what they want. And if man don't get what they want, what are they going to do? They're going to stand up and call you blessed. Y'all say amen. Listen, aren't you glad that God created all his creatures to be inhabited by him? Aren't you glad for that? Say amen. And the day God saved me, the day God saved you, you gave up your rights. It's now privileges of grace. Why? Because in God, there's no separation. And you and I need to understand that we live in a day of anarchy all across this world. And by the way, it was anarchy before all these rights. Y'all say amen. This is just an outflow. So it's been like that for years all across this world. Listen to the news of what's happened in other countries before COVID-19, before any of this other stuff. It was anarchy upon anarchy upon anarchy. But are, is there ever been a day more like it than today? Now watch. The apathy of man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage. What does it say? They lived their life as if there was nothing ahead that was going to change how they lived. In other words, they lived their life as if there was no judgment coming. They lived their life as if nothing was going to intervene. Nothing was going to stop them. It's called apathy. And listen, not only can that affect the lost, but it can affect the saved. Look, look with me, if you will, at Luke chapter 21. See if this sounds familiar to our day. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth. Distress of nations. Does that sound like today? With perplexity. What does that mean? Confusion. Does that sound like today? And the sea and the waves roaring. Tsunamis. Does that sound like today? Men's hearts failing them for fear. Does that sound like today? What's happened today with this COVID-19? People are more scared of it than they are God. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the cloud. Look, cloud, not earth. In other words, the rapture with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, what does he say? Look up. Why? Lift your heads. For your redemption draweth what? Let me tell you something I prayed. That when we left here today, when we walked outside, first thing we would do is not look down where we're stepping, but look up. Because I want to tell you something. If you understand this passage, if you understand what's going on in our day, and you're discerning the season in which we live, then you're going to understand that at any moment, at any day, our Lord could come back. Now, notice secondly, not only the description of the days of Noah, but the deception of the days of Noah. Look at verse 39. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Knew not what? What did they not know? Judgment was on the horizon. 
They were living their lives, giving in marriage, drinking, eating. They're doing everything normal. And then all of a sudden, they're doing it completely blind to the fact that God was going to judge the earth. And they were oblivious to it, deceived about it. The word took here is a Greek word. It means they were took away in judgment. Why? Because they didn't listen to what God had to say to them. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years. You say, how do you know that? Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. 120 years to build the ark. Do you really think it would have really took that long to build the ark if God would have wanted it done quicker? No. Why did God wait 120 years? He gave time and space for repentance. And 2 Peter says what? That Noah, that whole time, was a preacher of righteousness. Now you say, what are you saying? I'm saying the whole time that Noah was alive. 2 Peter 2.5, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That whole time, Noah was building the ark. What was he doing? He was preaching the righteousness of God. He was preaching the righteousness of God. He was preaching the righteousness of God. Why? Why righteousness? Because righteousness exposes evil. And exposes sin. And he preached and he preached and he preached and he preached. And how did the people respond? Oh, I bet Noah had a bunch of converts, didn't he? No, he had none. Why didn't he have any? God wasn't in their equation. They were living their life the way they wanted to live it. They were getting what they wanted to get. Why did I need God? But it's not that they didn't hear for 120 years they heard. Can you imagine? Here's a man. Now, I want you to get this picture. Let's paint this picture together. Here's a man. God's told to build a boat when it's never rained. In the desert. And he stands up and says, you better get right. It's going to rain. God's going to destroy the earth by water. You better get right. What do you think those folks were saying? You're nuts. You've fallen off your rocker, you old man. You're nuts. Rain, what is that? I mean, we've never seen that. Rain, you're saying it's going to rain. you say God's going to destroy my flood. You're nuts. But how do you think those same people felt when the water started coming from above and started coming up from underneath? Can you imagine as that water began to rise upon the earth and now they couldn't touch the ground anymore and now they're left to wading and trying to swim and trying to spare their own life? Can you imagine them trying the best they could, those that were near, to swim towards that ark that had now been lifted off the ground? Can you imagine them saying, Noah, we believe you now, Noah. Noah, we believe you now, Noah. Let us in, we believe you now, Noah. But can I tell you something? The Bible says God shut the door. Why did God shut the door? Because if Noah would have shut it, Noah could have opened it. And God said, I gave him 120 years to repent. And they wouldn't listen. The mercy of God gave them time. But the justice of God had to judge them. Just like the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. How many years you heard Jesus could come back? 
All my life I've heard it. So I better discern the season. Now, notice the deliverance in the days of Noah. Look at verse 40, verse 41. Then shall two be in the field and one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding in the mill. One shall be taken and the other left. So let's go back to the days of Noah. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it come be. All right, so what happened in the days of Noah? What did God do with Noah and his family? Eight people. God put them in the ark. Delivered them from the judgment. God determined he's going to judge the world, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. And God took Noah and his, and his family, eight people, put them in the ark. And he told Noah, he said, now I want you to take pitch and I want you to put it inside and outside the ark. The word pitch, guess what it is? It's the same Hebrew word for redemption. Now watch it. In verse 39, the took was in relation to take it away in judgment. They were swept away in judgment. So what is the taken in verse 40 and 41? Some very, very, very good Bible scholars, some that I really enjoy reading, they say that in verse 40 and 41, that because in verse 39, the took means to be swept away in judgment, that verse 30 and or 40 and 41 means that they were taken out to be judged and those that were left were left for the millennial reign. But there's a problem with that. You say, what's the problem? Now, I'm going to tell you something. Now, listen to me. When I found this, I literally, I was here by myself or with nobody here, but I started shouting. Because when I read one, one guy specifically that I really enjoy reading, when he said that, I said, man, that just, don't, that just don't jive with my spirit. And so I went and done my word studies. And you're not going to believe this. Can y'all handle this? Y'all say amen. The word took in verse 39 and the word taken in verse 40 and 41 are two different Greek words that have absolutely two different meanings. The word took in verse 39 means to carry away as a ship being carried away by the waves on the sail. But the word taken in verse 40 and verse 41, here's what it means, okay? To receive unto yourself as precious. So in other words, what it's saying is two were working in the field. One was received as precious. The other was left. Two were in the mill. One was received as precious. The other was left. You say, preacher, you can't prove that. I can. Let me give you two verses that prove it for you. You ready? Matthew chapter 1 verse 20. Look what it says. But why he, being Joseph, being, he was being communion with the angel of the Lord. But why he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not, take, same word, take unto thee, Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So here's what he said. He said, listen, Joseph, he said, I want you to receive Mary unto yourself as precious, as your precious bride. I want you to take her unto yourself as your bride. Same word used in verse 40 and 41. Now, would you agree today that if this word taken meant in judgment, that you could not interpret it as being received as precious? But let me show you another verse that even nails at home more. John chapter 14, verse 3. Watch this with me. The Lord speaking. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Y'all see that word receive? Same Greek word is taken. And here's what the Lord says. I will receive you unto myself as my precious bride. So both times this word is interpreted in other places in the New Testament. What is it referencing? A bridegroom receiving a bride. And can I tell you what's going to happen at the rapture? The Bible says we are betrothed to the Lord Jesus. But in that day, the father is going to say to the son, Son, go get your bride. And when the Lord Jesus comes, he's not going to come to the earth. He's going to come in the clouds. And what's going to happen? He's going to receive us up unto himself as his precious, spotless, blameless bride. So Noah, was he taken out of the judgment? Absolutely was. Notice two things, the lifting out of judgment. The Lord Jesus pulls us out and brings us to himself. But then notice the leaving behind for judgment. One will be taken, one will be left. God told Noah, Noah, Take your family. Get into the ark. Notice God didn't say, take anybody else with you. Why? He gave them 120 years to repent, and they wouldn't repent. And then the Bible says God shut the door. And now Noah was taken out of judgment and placed in the safe haven of the ark. Pictures Christ in Scripture. So let me ask you a question. If judgment was tomorrow, tribulation began tomorrow, and Jesus came, pulled his bride out before he pushed judgment upon this earth, would you be in the waters of judgment? Or would you be in the wonder? of Christ. I want to tell you something, folks. The answer to that question is an eternal answer. You and I must understand that you and I live in the last of the last of the last of the last days. You see, the season started in 1948. And that generation will not pass away till all these things come true. So you do the math. You do the math. See, I don't believe we're in the last days. That's what Paul said his days were, were the last days. So if they were the last days for Paul, what does that make us? See, here's what I believe, based upon these passages and many others. That not only are we in the season when the Lord's going to come. I believe we're at the end of the season where the Lord's going to come. Do I know the day? No. Do I know the hour? Nope. But can we know the season? God said absolutely. When you see these things happen, Look up. Your redemption draweth out. Notice lastly, 
the declaration about the days of Noah. Verse 42. Watch therefore. What's the word watch mean? Guard yourself therefore. For you know not what hour your Lord doth come. You know, folks, Titus 2 says this. Talking about grace being our teacher. Grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why should our lives be holy? Because Jesus is coming. Now, folks, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. If you're saved, this ought to make you do flips of joy in your heart. You say, why? What did John say? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, what? Come. But it also ought to give you a sense of urgency in your heart. Why? Well, number one, if you knew you were going to see your Savior today, What would you do? Would you just go home, do what you normally do? Well, let me ask you another question. How many people do you know that if the Lord shut the door to these days would be outside? clinging to whatever they can cling to in the midst of God's judgment. When's the last time you've been a knee as an intercessor for somebody else? I'm telling you, we're the only generation that can say that we live in that season. Only one. So are you ready? Because any day, I'll tell you how close I think it is. I think Gabriel's cleaning out the spit valve and the trumpet. One friend of mine said it this way. I go to bed every night, not expecting to get up the next morning. I get up every morning surprised I'm still here. You say, well, preacher, I've heard this all my life. It's not happened yet. Noah, you've told us this for 120 years. Not happened yet. As it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be. Father, you know the hearts of every person in this place. I pray, Father, that you would put your finger on whatever you need to put your finger on in our lives. You know if there's anybody in this place that 
just have to be just bluntly honest. That if you shut the door on this age, they'd be on the outside looking in. But Father, maybe there's those in this place, they know that when you come for your church, they would go. But Father, there's this conviction about them because they know there's things in their life that shouldn't be there. There's, they know that there's things in, with their time and their talents that they haven't surrendered to you. Father, I thank you today that when we meet our Lord in the air, your word says in 1 John 3, we will be like him. But, oh, Father, I pray and for every one of us in here this morning or those listening online, you'd be able to say of us that you found us faithful in your coming. Father, I pray we'd have a sense of urgency for those that we know their life is not right. Father, I truly believe we're not willing to bend a knee for those, we're not willing to witness to those. Have your will and your way in this invitation for your glory in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, you obey God.